Thank you so much, worship team, and thank you uh, so much for Melissa, who's been working on some of these graphics. Uh, I had made my own graphic for tonight. It was a picture of a wave, and so uh, I, I like that better, so that was pretty cool, but uh, glad to be with you. Glad to share a little bit more about Jonah. It's kind of been, uh, I guess, 15 months since I first decided I want to talk about Jonah, and, uh, and I did speak a little bit in March, I think it was, about it, uh, maybe, maybe May, but uh, just kind of a part two tonight, but... Uh, I also wanted to just share something really cool with you. I, I got a new Bible. You guys get excited about buying new Bibles? I hadn't bought a Bible since I was 19, and uh, my, my, my past Bible was a bit famous for being the duct tape Bible, and I was kind of proud of that, how much duct tape was on it, but it eventually got to the point where even duct tape could not save it. So it's, uh, it's not easy picking out a Bible, though. You, you, you know, online, I don't know about you, but online, I, I want to I feel it, I want to touch it, and Christian bookstores uh, are, are disappearing rather rapidly, but we actually found an, a really cool place in Tilsonburg where we were able to go and uh, kind of check out some Bibles. And uh, I, I like this one. It has a few shortcomings. Or I kind of had some checklist things I wanted. I'm still an NIV guy. I don't know if that uh, means anything to you or not. And I wanted one that was kind of, uh, you know, that was laid out in a certain way. But uh, I, I got most of what I wanted on my checklist. I wasn't able to get my kind of my number two thing on my checklist was that I really hoped to get a first edition printing. Um, but uh, pretty, pretty hard to find, and uh, even more difficult to find, I could not get one signed by the author. And so, well, besides that, I'm pretty happy with it. And so, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about Jonah as the lights came on. And uh, uh, last time I, I entitled my message just The Unwilling Messenger, and we kind of we focused on three ideas. The first one was this, that uh, when you run from God, you often disconnect with sources of wisdom in your life. We talked about how that was true for Jonah as he would have left, you know, uh, the, the Jerusalem and the temple and synagogues behind and headed somewhere where basically no one knew the God he served. And he kind of disconnected there. And we talked about in our lives, we kind of do the same thing. When, when we put distance between ourselves and our, and our Lord, we tend to want to kind of not hang out where a bunch of Christians are hanging out. So if you, you've been going out to a youth group, you kind of ease up on that. If you've been going out to church, you kind of ease up on that. Maybe you decide not to, to re-up on your Bible study. You know, when your Bible study switches to a new study, maybe you don't kind of continue on. And then the second thing we talked about is that when you run from God, you're often the last one to know you're in trouble. And we talked about how Jonah was sleeping very restfully as that storm came over, uh, over the boat that he was on. And we talked about in our lives, you know, so often it's the people around us who just kind of shake their heads and go like, I don't know what they're doing. Like, I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know why they're doing those sort of things. But should I say something or should I not say something? And we kind of end up in that spot where the people around us know that something's going on long before we do. And the third point, and the one that we hoped you left with that night, was that although you can run from God, you can't outrun God. And we talked about this idea that although that's true, you can't outrun God, it wasn't supposed to sound like a threat or something scary or ominous. It was supposed to be a promise that when you, you, although you can run from God, you can't outrun God. It was not meant to be literal either. That it's this idea, you know, if you want to be literal, I guess you would say something like, uh, you know, if uh, although you can run from God, he's already wherever you're heading. And so for that reason, it makes no sense to run from God. But we kind of play with that illusion a little bit of Jonah being kind of the preeminent runner of the Old Testament. And uh, so that's where we kind of left it last time. And, uh, and it, it's great news, though, really, if you think about it, that, that we, we serve a God that does not uh, just kind of wash his hands of us when we fall short and just kind of walk away, that he's a God that chases after us, if you will. Uh, and so when we say you can run from God, but you can't outrun God, we often find that God will kind of put into our lives some of those, 
now the Lord, then the Lord, but the Lord moments. We talked about that last time as well, that when God decides to intervene, just not in an attempt to kind of show us who's boss, but in an attempt to recapture our affection, to recapture our hearts, to recapture what's going on in our lives and our attention. And so uh, you might be sitting here right now and you might be thinking to yourself, you know, that maybe this talk might be something that kind of turns your attention back to him. Or you might find it awkward to sit through something like this if you feel deep in your heart that maybe you're a runner, that maybe you are someone who's running. Because really, when you choose to stop running, what you're saying is that you're surrendering, that you're, you're kind of giving up on, on this idea of getting away. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen a movie, like, like when the, when, what does the cop yell when he pulls out his gun and wants you to stop running away? He says, freeze. And what do you instantly do, hopefully? You freeze, and then what do you do? Right? The surrender is almost automatic. And I think they do that for a reason. I think that's because if they said, hey, surrender, they'd have everybody just doing this and still running, right? So I think it makes sense, but we, it's kind of almost implied that when you, when you stop running, you're kind of surrendering, but we're not giving up control of our lives. We're just turning back towards God to see what his will for us would be. And so for us to fully understand that moment of surrender, we have to understand that we're not giving up on something. We're just turning back to somewhere we really should have been. And that's what the story of Jonah and the story about a man who ran from God, that's what we understand about Jonah. That it's, it, you know, this is not a result that all runners find themselves in does not mean that if you're choosing to kind of distance yourself from God, that this is going to happen to you. But we do remember that the, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Jonah, is still the God we serve today. And so I think there are lessons we can learn there. But uh, whether you're inwardly or kind of outwardly or not even really consciously running from God, it's just this idea that you're resisting his will for you. You're kind of stiff-arming, you're kind of pushing away and simply saying that's not something that I want to do. And it, and it can be something in your life or it can be everything in your life. It could be, you know, that you're resisting God's will for you in terms of your relationships. There's something that you're doing that you know God doesn't want you to be doing, but you're just kind of keeping, keeping that at, at a distance. Or your finances. Maybe it's something at your work life or your home life. Maybe it's your marriages. Maybe it's the role you have with your parents, whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult and you're still kind of dealing with your parents. There's lots of different areas that we resist from, but it's not always everything. I think it's easier for us to kind of imagine Jonah who was rejecting everything. Jonah didn't just say, I'm not going to Nineveh and then just go down to Starbucks. He said, I'm rejecting this and I'm leaving. And so that's what we, what we found in his case. But uh, we need to understand that what we can learn from Jonah is not simply what happens if we ever find ourselves on a boat in a storm. It's bigger than that. It's talking about us pushing away from God. And so if you're, you're running from God, you're stiff-arming God, or you've just turned your back on God, there's something for, in Jonah that you can learn from. Because it's very seldom we're likely to pack a suitcase and head out. I shared last time about when I was a kid, I ran away from home. And you know, my plan was to go live in a tree. And it wasn't a very thoughtful plan. But it was a physical leaving of something. And it wasn't really about where I was going. It was what I was leaving. That's what I thought anyway. So a quick little review. I'm going to throw this map up. I'm not going to say much about it, but just a reminder that uh, you know these were real places and real things that were happening. This is not uh, you know this is not a made up story. That this is a story that were, were that shared through us. You know we know that Tarshish was a place. We know that Nineveh was a place. We knew what the people of Nineveh were like. We knew where Jonah was going from. We knew even where he got on his boat to leave on his trip. But I thought you know we should do some review. And I thought what is that one kind of high school teacher thing that everybody likes to do? And that is when you get a fill-in-the-blank note. Do you guys like those? Yeah. 
Yeah, because, because you do almost none of the writing. We, we, as teachers, we understand that. But we're going to do a little fill-in-the-blank note here. So we'll just put up the blank, uh, the blank template here, and uh, let's see how you guys do, because you're doing it, not me. So it simply says this, Jonah was a prophet, right? That makes sense. Let's see if that's right. I think that's right. It is right. Just trust me. And it says, uh, and one day God told Jonah to get off his couch. 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 We're in church, guys. You're better than that. Come on. Told him to get off his couch and go to the great city of Nineveh. That's right. When he got there, he was supposed to announce God's judgment, right? Judgment on his people. God instead hopped on a ship heading to Tarshish which was in the opposite direction. But then God sent a huge storm. Storm first, good though. It's a huge storm that threatened the ship and its entire crew. In a panic, you got another slide here. In a panic, the crew asked Jonah what his deal was, and he told them that he was running from God. You guys know the story so well. After a little more discussion, Jonah admitted that he was all, that this was all his fault, and he told the crew to throw him I thought you might say a party. That's right, overboard. (laughs) And the storm instantly subsided. However, because our God believes in second chances, God arranged for Jonah to be swallowed by a giant fish. That's right, where he spent three days and three nights. You guys know this story. Uh, We don't have to. We don't have to review it then. But we know that story. That's that's where we got to. Right. We knew that that Jonah in that moment did not put forth a case as to why he should not go to Nineveh. He did not get into an argument with God about why he should or shouldn't go to Nineveh. He simply decided, I'm not going to do that. And we can be a little bit like that too, right? When we read our Bible, we read something and we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Or you hear something in a sermon and you think, oh, I'm not going to do that either. Or, you know, you hear something or somebody say something, and you say, yeah, you know what? My dad used to say that to me all the time, but I, I, don't, really, I don't really buy into that. And so Jonah's saying to God, you know, God, I understand I'm just not going to do this. And so he ran. He ran as far as he could. And once he was swallowed up by that great fish, or we often say a whale, um, he discovered something. And that something is very important. And it's really, you know, you know I'm often told that uh, a real preacher will give you a three-point sermon. I can never seem to get there. This is another one-point sermon. If you leave here knowing one thing, I will be very happy tonight. And that is simply this. God is generous with his grace, but he is dedicated to his discipline. And I mean, yeah, that's an important side note there, I think, too, because some of you might be actually wondering to yourself right now, am I a runner? And when I said the discipline part, some of you kind of had a little sinking feeling in your stomach, and that's usually a good indication that maybe there's something going on in your life where you would be considered a runner. But it's that second part. God is dedicated to his discipline. And if your heart sinks a little bit, you know, I, I, I hate to tell you this, but that probably means you're a runner. And if you heard the first part, God is generous in his grace, and you felt really good about that, and you were thinking to yourself, wow, this is a really great sermon, then that makes sense. I'm just kidding. You all think it's a great sermon, but it's just an illustration, right? It, it, it probably makes sense because that's what we think. But let me ask you this. As, as a teacher, I'll tell you, which kids love super strict teachers? The good kids, right? And some of you are like, uh, all kids are good kids. Agree to disagree. No. Um, but that's, the good kids like the strict teacher, right? Because they're not in line for any of that discipline. They're in line for the good stuff. So God is generous with his grace. 
but he is dedicated to his discipline. And there's a tension that we don't like there because we kind of want to think of God as all grace. And some of us don't like that statement because we, in our brains, we kind of equate grace with love and discipline with anger. But that's not what we're told here. God is all love. And because he is all love, we know that God is generous with his grace, but he is dedicated to his discipline. We talked about this last time too. Jonah discovered that discipline is not there to pay us back for what we've done. But instead, God's dedication to discipline is instead of being about payback, it's, it's to bring us back. That what happened to Jonah wasn't to teach Jonah a valuable lesson about doing what you're told. It was to bring Jonah back in line with God's will. Because God had a plan for Nineveh and Jonah didn't want any part of it. And so now Jonah is in the belly of this great fish, and it's not like he's enjoying those accommodations. It's not like it was overly comfortable. It's not like you were staying at the Super 8. Press, press. I don't know what happened to my... Oh, he's still there. Sorry, I thought my media guy went to the bathroom. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's exciting. It's not like staying at the Super 8. No? 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 All right. You know what? I don't get paid to, to, to be funny, and you apparently don't get paid to laugh. So uh, he's not playing at the Super 8. He's, he's, he's in some pretty uncomfortable situation here. He's in the belly of a great fish. He prays in that moment, not surprisingly. If you're going to pray, that's probably the time you want to do it. And, and we later find out that he wrote down this prayer at another time because we don't think this actually happened. You often see pictures of this when it comes to you know, Jonah in the belly of the whale. And he's just, he's just waiting for the wine menu there when he's done writing his, his uh, memoirs inside this whale. And so that's not what it was like, right? We're, we're, we're fairly certain of that. But we do know that afterwards, he wrote down what he was thinking in those moments. And it was a powerful insight. But the bottom line is simply this. Jonah's discovered something. And as, as many of us will discover throughout the years uh, as we walk with the Lord, he's discovered something that this generous grace of God is often comes alongside this dedication to discipline. I don't think Jonah, although you can absolutely argue Jonah was rescued by that fish, I don't think Jonah's inside that fish going, excellent, this is exactly how I wanted this to go. And so we're going to end with the last verse of chapter 1, which is where we ended last time as well. Uh, if you're looking for Jonah, uh, probably start with Matthew and go back a few pages. It's, if you start in Genesis, you, we might all be gone home before you find it. It's a very small book in amongst a bunch of other very small books. No, no shame in using your table of contents, or you just start at Matthew and just kind of flip back. You'll find it fairly quickly. But the, the story of Jonah is, is laid out, uh, as we've already talked about, but we're going we're gonna to pick it up in the last verse of chapter 1. That's chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, now, the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And that might be my favorite sentence in the Bible. Just the way he says arrange. So I just have trouble picturing that. It's almost, it sounds like an Uber app, doesn't it? Like I'm going to arrange for a pickup in the middle of the ocean. But God says arranged for this fish. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. And he says this, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble. And he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and the Lord you heard, and Lord, you heard me. I want you to notice something, because this was written about 2,800 years ago, but I want you to notice something that basically um, still stands true today, just, to, just as much as it ever has. And I'm going to use the NIV version, because I just love the language here when it says this. Instead of saying, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, it says this, In my distress, I called to the Lord. 
And isn't that true for all of us from time to time? In your distress is when you call out to the Lord. I mean, maybe you're on your way home um, to tell your parents that you have bad news about both your math test and your pregnancy test. And that's the moment where you cry out to the Lord in your distress. Maybe you're in the back of a police car and your pastor drives by and kind of gives you a slow wave. And then you hear him as he passes by say, Siri, call everyone. And in that moment of your distress, you're going to call out to the Lord. Maybe you've decided that the best financial plan you can come up with is to have your phone cut off first so that the rest of your creditors can't call you anymore. In that moment of distress, you're going to call out to the Lord. Maybe you turn the corner in your grocery store and you see your wife and your girlfriend talking to each other. In that moment, you're going to call out to the Lord. Whenever we find ourselves in distress, we seem to have a very short memory for what got us to that moment of distress. We seem to be in that spot where Jonah was, where Jonah, suddenly he's inside the fish and he's praying, Lord, in my great distress, I'm coming back to you. And that's what we read. And so it says again in Jonah 2, 2, we just read this, but in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. He's saying the same thing here twice. He's saying that I'm begging and you're answering. And what we learn is that God listens to desperate cries of desperate people who find themselves in desperate situations, often because of their own creation. And it does take some nerve, doesn't it, in that moment? Because you know your track record and you know that God knows your track record. You know, Jonah knows exactly how he got there for him suddenly to declare, Lord, in my distress, in my distress, you answer me. As I sink deep, deep, deep into the water, you listen to my cry for help. And it actually makes me think a little bit about uh, my favorite. I don't think I've ever shared my favorite Bible verse. Who, who, you guys have a favorite Bible verse? I used to think it was kind of weird that you would have a favorite Bible verse because it kind of changes with your circumstance, right? But this has been mine for probably 10 years now. It's from Isaiah 59, and it's verse 1. And again, I'm an NIV guy, so I'm going to give you the NIV version. It says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. And that really connected me to a time of doubt in my life. And when I thought, you know, I I had done things that God could not forgive, that I had made a mess of things that God could not fix, I found such great comfort. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But then it was interesting because I was looking at that verse this week, and then I read the next verse. You ever do that? You have a favorite verse or a verse you know really well, and then you kind of forget there's more verses to come, right? Everybody knows John 3.16. Did you know there's a John 3.17? It keeps going. So I just happened to read the next verse this week. I wasn't, it wasn't as part of prep for this, but it just, it just hit me. The next verse, so verse, verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Here's the very next verse. But your iniquities, and the your is, is mine and yours, not God. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sin have hidden his face from you. That's exactly what we're talking about with Jonah. Our iniquities have separated us from our God, and it's our sins that have hidden his face from us. God does not hide his face from us. God does not get frustrated with us to the point where he just walks away and says, I'm just done. You know, they, they, are, they are unsavable. 
It's our actions, our turning away from God that, that makes it seem as though his face is hidden. I mean, it's, it's, it, just to say real literally, I'm looking at my wife right now, and if I turn my back on her, where'd she go? Her face is hidden from me. She hasn't gone anywhere, but her face is hidden from me in that moment. In your distress, when you call on the Lord, he will answer you because he hasn't gone anywhere. As much as you've been running, as much as you've been trying to straight arm God away, kind of keep him out of your life, out of your business, as much as you try to do that, God has not gone anywhere. And that, I would argue, is a demonstration of a lot of grace. That's what grace is. And so regardless of how far you've run, it's, this is a daily invitation to come back, to surrender, and to follow his will. Because he will not give up on you, no matter how difficult your story is. But then Jonah goes on. Again, this is part of the prayer that he writes. Um, again, I don't think he wrote it in the belly of the fish, but based on his belly of the fish experience, if you will, it says this, starting in verse 3. You hurled me into the depth, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me life up from brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Now that's a prayer, and that's a prayer from the heart. When you know why you're in the belly of the fish. That is, not a, that is not a prayer questioning God. This isn't a what did I do prayer. This is I know what I've done and I can't believe that you're still pursuing me, that you're still coming after me. And that I think is the most interesting part. But just to remind yourselves of a few things. God, God asked Jonah to do something. Jonah doesn't do it. He gets on a boat. He takes off. A storm arrives. The storm basically, it, it's to the point where Jonah gets thrown in the water because he's the reason for the storm. Um, He hits the water, he starts to sink down, the huge fish shows up that was arranged for him, and then Jonah has this moment of clarity. And so here's my question. At what point in this story do you think Jonah repented? At what point do you think he recognized that he was in distress? When do you think he finally broke? When do you think, maybe, maybe maybe it was day one in the fish, Maybe it was in the water when he first saw the fish, right? I, I don't think many people would see this giant fish coming towards him and think, oh, good, my ride's here, right? I think it's going to be pretty difficult to imagine that, right? He's sinking down. Was it day three? Was it as he was spit out on the beach? Well, let me ask you maybe a more pointed question. Do you think Jonah was wet or dry when he realized that he was in need for repentance, that he realized he was in distress and he needed to call out to God? Because I think it was while he was still dry. I believe it was when the guys were standing on the deck holding his ankles and his wrists and doing the one, two, and then they stopped to say, wait, are we going on three or is it three, then we go? That's the moment where I think Jonah's like, oh man. He had that little aha moment. Maybe it was midair. Maybe it was, maybe it was wet. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But that's what I wonder. When did Jonah understand what he had done and why this was happening? Because it sounds to me like it happened on the boat. Why else would he have had this revelation? Guys, guys, this is about me. This is about God and this is about me. I think he knew earlier and yet he went in the water. And yet the rest of this plan played through because God is dedicated to his discipline for a sole purpose. 
so that we stop straying from him. And I think it was in that moment, probably midair, where, where, where Jonah was saying to himself, you know what, I'll go to Nineveh. I think at that point he would have agreed to go to Narnia. I think he just wanted out of that situation. I think he might have even been willing to go to Dunville. I don't know. But in that moment, he realizes he's in trouble. And I think it's in that moment that, that Jonah realizes that God is so generous with his grace. But he is dedicated to his discipline. And God knows, because he loves you, that that discipline is not to pay you back for what you've done wrong. It's to bring you back. It's to win you back. It's to ensure that, you, that we understand there's consequences from running. There's consequences. When we choose to separate from God's love, we should not expect to have a close relationship with the Lord when we reject him. And the next verse is actually the key verse, I think. The next verse describes the dilemma that every person, not just Jonah, but every person who is running from God faces. And it's really condensed down into this one single statement. And this is the next verse after what we just read. So this is Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Let's look at that first sentence again, though. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And I, this word cling, it's an interesting word. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, are we about to do a peek at the Greek? No, this is Hebrew. I'm sorry, we can't. But you know peek at the Greek, right? You guys recognize the, the, the game show slide here? It's coming? Yep. Well, it's still in the design phase, but we are working on the next round, which we're simply going to call a view of the Hebrew. Which, uh, which will be coming out probably by summer. And uh, if we get time and if we can get past some of the lawyers, to be honest, we're trying to develop this. Our third option, I don't know if we have the third one up there as well, is simply going to be called How You Say It in Aramaic because it's, it's, it's become a phenomenon, as you know. And so what we're trying to do is kind of bring all those things along. So here's the word. Here it is, the Hebrew word that we saw there for the word cling. And it's pronounced misemerim, maybe. I don't know. That's what it spells out like, basamarim. And so that's what it would look like on a piece of paper where it was written. I think what's really interesting is it's not used anywhere else in the Bible. This is one of those words that is used once. And we would use the word cling to describe it because there's two, two aspects to it. The first would be to adhere or stick to. So a little bit like if you went out in the rain and your shirt is clinging to you, it's sticking to you, it's, it's adhering to you. The other is, to, is the idea of hanging on in desperation. So the idea of a squirrel clinging to a hydro line so it doesn't fall onto the road. That's what the word cling here means. And so when Jonah says this, those who cling, who's those? It's a bit of a trick question. It was Jonah five minutes ago. This is how quickly Jonah changed gears, right? So Jonah's, Jonah's one of those. Now he has this aha moment in the great fish. Now those are other people who don't get it. So I love that about Jonah. He said, those who cling, those who grab onto, those who adhere themselves to the worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. And I think that's something that's very interesting because I, I think it kind of reads into something we said last time. Last time I talked about how when a kid runs away from home, it's usually not about where they're going. It's about where they're leaving from. It's about leaving this situation, not really knowing where they're going. But Jonah's saying something different here. He's saying that it's when we cling to these things that we're seeking after, that's when we turn our back on God, when we cling to these, these worthless idols, as he says. And so it says when we run from God, we're running to something. 
or we're running to someone, or we're running for an opportunity maybe to make some money. We're running to a lifestyle that looks like a lot more fun than your current lifestyle. You're running to a certain type of pleasure. You're running to a certain form of entertainment. You're running to find those friends who are looking to do exactly what you're looking to do. You're running towards something because you're, it's this idea of clinging to, these worthless things that you're clinging to. And it, there, Jonah discovers this, that something right there in the belly of the great fish that he didn't seem to recognize even the day before, that when you run from God, you actually are running towards something. And that something is whatever it is about God that you're rejecting. If I don't want to hear God tell me about my finances, it's because I have other plans for my finances. If I don't like God's moral message about relationships, that's because it's interfering with how I want to live my life. And so we find ourselves in that situation where we, we're running to what we're clinging to is the opposite of what God would have for us. And that's why we're turning our back. That's why we're no longer pursuing God. We're running from God. And here's what Jonah's saying. He says, when you choose to cling to these worthless idols, these useless things that our culture puts so much emphasis on, you're turning your back on God's love. And that's what running is. It's turning your back on God, putting him in your rearview mirror while you chase after these worthless idols. And if your mind isn't blown yet, let's look at the second half of that sentence. I think it's even more, more telling. Um, and it says this. They, uh, sorry, they, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. What does that mean, turns away from God's love? Here's another interpretation based on the, the, the literal language interpretation. They forsake God's mercy for you. And that takes us right back to that verse in Isaiah, doesn't it? That, that, that uh, 59.2, remember what I, we read in Isaiah, it says this, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, yet in your sins have hidden your face, has hidden his face from you. It's the same thing. It's crazy. Jonah's learned this over the course of three days or less. It could have been three seconds as he was in the air, but he's learned this, that those people who turn their back on God, those people who were just like Jonah the day before, it's kind of like they all of a sudden realize that when they finally get what it is they want, that's not what they want. If I'm chasing after something and I'm rejecting God's will to chase after something that, that I believe society or culture wants for me and that's something that I want, when I finally get what it is I'm chasing after, that's when I realize that I'm in distress. That's when I realize that I've turned my back on God. And that's when those then God, but God, now God moments can speak so loudly into our lives because in our despair, we don't cry out to the things that we have been pursuing, we turn around and we cry out to God. That's what we do in our despair. So in your despair, you're not crying out to the person that you wanted to date so desperately or the car you wanted to buy so, so uh, desperately. It's not the job you were chasing after. It's not any of those things. When distress comes, when you're midair heading, heading for the ocean bottom, it's the Lord you cry out to. And that's what we see over and over again in the scriptures. In our despairs, we don't cry out for any of those things. We cry out for God. Because deep down, we know that there's only one source of power to save. We know there's only one love that, that the one, per, one person that loves us more than we love ourselves. We know that there's only one who calls us our, his precious children and will never forsake us. And so Jonah says, you know, he comes to that run from God moment. He comes to that point of brokenness when he realizes that whatever he was chasing, whatever worthless idol was, he was pursuing out uh, in Tarshish, Tarshish, 
that the only way he was ever going to stop running and surrender was to let go of those worthless idols. And when you're not clinging to those things, that's when you turn back to God. It's this final moment of clarity where Jonah says, listen, I get it. I'm done chasing these worthless things. I'm going to read it again. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But then what does Jonah finish with? But I, Jonah, with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. In his distress, he turned to God, and in that moment, God was there. And he's basically saying this, this lesson learned for Jonah. Jonah's learned his lesson. Unless you've already read chapter 3 and 4, and then maybe not so much. We'll talk about that next time. But in this moment, he's, heard, he's learned his lesson. That which he was pursuing, he, he, he turns his back on that in his distress, and he, and he faces God. And that's the moment in which he fully understands that God has been there the entire time. That as much as he's run, as much as he's turned away, as much as he's kind of straight-armed God to try to keep him at a distance, God has never left him. He just hasn't seen God because he's turned his face. Why don't we pray? Lord, just so thankful for an opportunity to share your word. The story of Jonah you know, often gets left uh, for Sunday school classes, Lord, but it's, there's so much there, and it really speaks to the human condition, Lord, that, that I imagine everyone at some point in their life, have felt that, that urge where they've pushed God away to pursue other things. They've said no to the will of God because they thought they wanted something else more strongly, more importantly. But we know, Lord, in our distress, where do we turn? We turn to the only place we can turn. We turn to you, Lord, because you are a Lord, you are a Savior, you are a Father, and you, Lord, never run out of patience for us. And so we accept uh, so thankfully that grace, Lord, but we also accept that discipline to understand that you know what's best. And if we live a life that's aimed at you, that's directed at you, Lord, that we will live the life that you've laid out for us. When your will is being done, Lord, we will have a connection with you that can never be, never be torn apart. I thank you for that, Lord, and I thank you for a chance just to, to share that uh, with the good people of Kingsway. Just pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you guys can swing it, I'd love to come back for a part three because we're only halfway through Jonah. So make sure you mention to Zach and Mark that, uh, you know, it's uh, never a bad idea. It's, um, I, we do want to talk about this. We, we've got an unwilling messenger who became an unwilling passenger, and now we're going to find he's an unwilling forgiver. I'm not sure if that's proper English, but uh, the, the story of Jonah isn't over yet because right now there's a nice little bow on it. I would like to hear the story of Jonah end when he climbs up on that beach and brushes himself off and heads off to Nineveh to do what he's asked to do and everything works out great, but that's not how the story ends. So feel free to read ahead if you'd like. If not, uh, we'll pick it up there next time. So we have some discussion questions. I'm not going to read them to you, but I do want to point out number four. Um, It's kind of the implied ending, I guess, to the sermon, we could say, Um, you know, why do you think people wait until a moment of despair to stop running? I think that's a question we can answer from our minds. Um, but ask this question of yourself. Do you have to wait? Do you have to wait for a moment of despair to stop running from God? Can you choose to interrupt that cycle? Can you choose in a, in a moment where things are fine to say, I see where this is heading and I'm going to interrupt that cycle? And if you can, will you? Hope you guys have a great week and uh, we'll see you again next time.